Jodie, hello. Hi. Um, I'm joined today, delighted to be joined today by Jodie Izzit, who is the, now Jodie, we've done things before and I've struggled with your, your introduction, you've got so many things going on, but try again. So you are the creator of the Nurture programme, yeah. um, which is an online support system group space. Yeah, so yeah, we run support groups, programs, training, uh, free kind of educational videos. And would you say for, for, for parents of neurodivergent children, young people? You yeah, so any neurodivergence, um, we don't just focus on one, one kind of um, difference or difficulty, such as autism, we kind of teach and learn and explore the whole lot. So ADHD, PDA, anxiety, etc. Um, also the author, publisher of the Autism with Love blog and books. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've saved this bit till last, but probably the most important bit, but mother of three. Yes, mother of three autistic children. Um, and autistic myself. And that, as I kind of mentioned to you before we started recording, um, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you today. So the the Neurodive podcast for me is an opportunity to talk to people uh, who experience the world in different ways because of their perhaps their neurodivergence or their neurotype. Um, for me, you know, as a professional working with neurodivergent children and young people in particular but also adults as well you know for over a decade when lockdown happened I got to spend more time doing this and it it just you know I, I thought I'd had a fairly good understanding of things and actually it really opened my eyes to how much more there was to learn by talking to individuals uh, so it's a really great opportunity for me selfishly but also I think for hopefully for parents professionals people that, that follow the podcast they'll get something from it as well um, when did you uh, when did you start thinking that you might be autistic it's really weird actually because I had no idea um, there was a couple of moments that were <laughs> we have a dog we have a guest dog we have a dog out Kelly <laughs> um so it was mainly last year um I had a couple of fleeting moments over the course of eight years or so that never really stuck um and I it, it was always kind of brushed out of my mind with a no you know don't be stupid but then during lockdown, like you just said, it was an opportunity for us to learn from neurodivergent adults. And I immersed myself into the online neurodivergent community and listened and learned. Um, and one day I kind of just thought, I have three autistic children and I've struggled with some differences that they struggle with as well. Um, and I started looking back on those difficult situations um, in my past and they just kind of kept stacking up. Um, and it was almost like a series of light bulb moments that happened. Um, and I thought, yeah, I struggled in school and 
I don't really have very many friends. Um, I struggle to form and keep those kind of lasting friendships, you know, and I look on other people on Facebook and I see, oh, you know, they've been, they, they've, they've stuck with their friends of 30 years. And I'm like, I don't have that. And I never had that in school. Um, I was kind of on the edge of most social groups. So I would take part in, in lots of different friendship groups, but never really stuck anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I struggled, in, I was never in the classroom. I was always sat outside the head teacher's office, you know, either being told off or purposely did something to, to get there so that I would not have to be in class. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very vulnerable as a young teenager, um, extremely vulnerable in lots of different ways. And I think, I kind of had a light bulb moment that kind of encouraged me more to explore and, and have an assessment when I was in the hospital having my gallbladder taken out. And it was last year in November, I was in extreme pain afterwards, very emotional. Um, and there were, I, I was in the bed right next to the nurse's station. And at one point over the course of about an hour, they kept like the nurses and the cleaners and the doctors kept congregating around the nurses station and talking really loud. And I'd just come round from the anaesthetic. And so my, my mind was, you know, just sensory hell, um, lights, movement, talking, and they weren't whispering. They were very loud and chatty and laughing and joking. And I did ask them to kind of, you know, I told them that I was struggling. Um, and it got to the point where they just weren't listening. They just, it, it just almost seemed as if they didn't care that I was really sat sitting there struggling. And I had a complete and you know, I meltdown. Um, I screamed, I shouted, and I walked out of the hospital about an hour and a half after having a major abdominal operation because I was just so stressed out. And that was the moment for me that said, you know, you, you need to know because you have to be able to advocate for yourself appropriately in those moments instead of getting to a point where, you know, there's no coming back from. Um, and since then, I've been able to advocate for myself before I get to that point of meltdown. Um, and it does still happen. And it hasn't happened very often since because I'm learning about myself every day and I am confident enough to say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm not very keen on that or I don't like that or it's too noisy here, so I'm going to leave. Um, and that's been a huge learning curve. So, it, I mean, at first getting the diagnosis was completely liberating. I felt like I finally understood and knew my whole self more. And it kind of put to rest those situations in my past where I felt vulnerable or I've had difficulties. And I finally understood why those things had happened. Mm -hmm. But then as time's gone on and I have been freely advocating for myself and telling people my likes and dislikes, it feels as if some people in my circle are finding that really difficult so 
whereas before I wouldn't talk about the things that bothered me and I would mask I'm not masking now you know I, I say I don't like that please don't do it and people don't like that they feel like I've changed which I have to them because I was always masking but to me I'm being myself and I'm taking care of my needs you know before apart from my children before anybody else's and um I feel like people are not accepting of the real me actually so I've gone from feeling very liberated in my diagnosis to on a journey of acceptance and understanding to a place where I actually don't feel accepted as myself or with my mask on because I still felt the same with that mask on like people weren't accepting of me so it's it's been a, it's I'm at a stage in my life now where I'm actually disappointed in people mm. for that reason that's so interesting I've got about a million questions now so <laughs> um I guess just to pick up on that really then so that's so interesting is it it reminds me of a friend of mine um, a, a few years back went through a really difficult period and, you know, was drinking quite a lot, taking a lot of drugs, you know, had an addiction. Um, and he, on his sort of road to recovery, he talked about, you know, having needed now to call people out when they did something he didn't like. And, and you know, it made me think back and actually he always used to be the person that would... Yeah, yeah, no worries, no worries, mate. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. No worries, no worries. And he'd never kind of say no to people. Um, and even for me, knowing that everything he'd been through, there was that bit of kind of, oh, well, okay, you're, you're doing that that now. It's, it's different. Um, yeah, obviously, because yeah. he's a close friend and I empathise with him and understand him and, and love him anyway. For me, that wasn't a problem to adjust to. Um, but it's interesting you're saying that now that for you, maybe that now that you're kind of unmasking, as it were, uh, people seem to have a bit of a problem with that. Is, is that what you were saying? That, you know, they're kind of not Just liking when you call stuff feel, out? I feel it makes them feel uncomfortable. Um, but I'm also quite kind on myself that I know that's not my fault and I yes. shouldn't have to bear that burden. Um, and that I, I can't change the fact that this makes me feel uncomfortable but you could change making me feel uncomfortable and I think that's the most important thing um to know about yourself and to also be confident to say it because I have three autistic children who need to learn that too um and that's really important that I set a good example so that my children aren't afraid to speak up for themselves well do you mind giving me any examples of things that you might say to someone that that's not, you know, you have to obviously name a specific person, but, you know, like, please don't do that. You know, are these things that, because I guess I'm interested in whether they're things that other people would find hard to do anyway, or they're, they're actually not big requests. It's just that they're surprised that you're asking them now. So hugging, touching, Mm. Um, you know the kiss greeting mm -hmm. things like that I find really uncomfortable and have done my whole life 
Um, and usually I would try and just try try and make myself appear busy so that I don't have to greet people. Um, but now I feel comfortable to just say, oh, hi, yeah, and walk past without having to stand there and have a hug or a kiss. Um, but that can make some people feel uncomfortable because that's what they're used to doing. That's what they've grown up doing. That's what they've been taught to do. Mm. Um, it, isn't, it isn't a personal thing. It's a societal thing where people greet each other with a handshake or a kiss. And I absolutely cannot stand that. I just don't like it. There are very few people who I feel accepting of to do that. And I haven't pinpointed why yet, why I feel comfortable with those specific people. So there are a couple of people who would greet me with a hello and give me a kiss on the cheek and I, would, and I wouldn't mind that. But the majority of people I would steer clear of when I know that there's gonna be a greeting. I mean, that doesn't seem to me, objectively, sort of, you know, from the outside looking in, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable request at all. So, no. yeah, you're quite right. The fact that certain people are finding that uncomfortable is uh, perhaps exposing a little bit of lack of empathy on their part. You know? Yeah. Um, with, so you don't know why certain people it's okay with. Are they people that you have particularly close relationships with? Or is yeah, it sometimes, yeah. So... Um, I mean, my circle of friends that I've hung around with for a very long time, sometimes they would greet with a kiss and I wouldn't like it. But then other times a certain person in that group could greet me with a kiss or a hug and, and I wouldn't mind. I just, I haven't worked out why there's uncomfortableness there with some people mm. and not others. But it literally is only a couple of people who I would feel comfortable doing that with. Do you think it would be anything to do with sensory stuff? Because, I mean, some people wear too much aftershave for a start, so I know I do. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it is. I think it's just... I, need, I don't like that invasion of my personal space. Hmm. Um, and I also... There is there is one um, reason as well, actually, and I've literally only just remembered why. Um, when I was younger, I used to see groups of people all doing this whole greeting thing, you know, hello, um, kiss a kiss or a cuddle. And I don't think I was ever really included in those groups of people. So something inside of me told me that they weren't going to, be that friendly with me or I I wasn't deserving of that kind of affection from my friends and so I think over the years I've kind of put myself on the edge in case I was rejected so that built into a whole I can't I just can't do that because I may be rejected so like I guess the greeting side of it is part of being included and if you're included you could be rejected yeah yeah okay just going back to to school then not literally because none of us want to do that mm -hmm. i mean I, like i had quite a similar experience being out in corridors and things like that um but going back to sort of school experiences you know you know you're talking about 
never it sounded like you were saying not, not maintaining friendships was a was a challenge you know like sort of staying friends for I, think it, I think it was the same sort of thing so I assumed that I would be rejected because I because I hadn't formed those kind of close-knit friendship circles I mean I had a few good friends at certain points it was never the same one um but they fizzled out and they had other friends that they could go and hang about with and they would sometimes and I would feel awkward or on the sidelines and left out so I would just not include myself in that group and I would go and find a different group mainly the boys I would hang around with the boys they were so much easier to get on with they didn't care that I was there you know because we would just go around around the back of the science block and smoke fags and be really naughty and I was really naughty at school so they quite enjoyed that um but then I made a name for myself because I was always with the boys. So, you know, I was a flirt or I was getting around. Um, and actually that was far from the truth. But weirdly, I found out about six or seven years ago that everybody in school thought that I was really popular. Mm. But I didn't feel like that. And that was because I was flitting from group to group. So I guess people assumed that I had lots and lots of friends. But to me, it felt like I was trying to trying to kind of hang on to any group that I could to appear as if I had friends. So it just goes to show that you don't really know what's going on in somebody's head. Because to me, it felt like nobody wanted me. But to everybody else, it appeared as if I had loads of friends and was really confident and really outgoing and really popular. But I had that thing inside my head saying, nobody wants you. You haven't got a good group of friends. You know, they don't like you. They take advantage of you. You know, they just like you because you're the naughty one and you make them laugh in class. And that that's what was in my head every day at school. That, that really reminds me of a, a few conversations over the years that I've had with, with parents where um, the reports they get from school is child's got loads of friendships, you know, popular or, or you know, interacts well. And the child comes home and says to mum and dad, as a reason for not enjoying school, I haven't got any friends. Yeah. And they're trying to unpick that is quite difficult sometimes. And I think that's really that bit of insight you've given there could be a, an explanation for lots of young yeah. people in that situation. Do you, the other thing I wanted to ask them was that, so the, the sort of perception of autistic social challenges, I think, is often um, that those social situations are difficult, they're confusing, they're hard to figure out. Is, is that what it was for you? Where do you think that that idea that you would go, you know, you had, you could be rejected or you didn't quite fit. Do you, did that come from, was it evidence-based? Had people rejected you in the past? Had you felt you got things wrong? If there is, I don't know if there is a wrong, I'm using inverted commas for people on the audio. I think um, a lot of the time I self-sabotaged. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would have a friendship group and then I would be very easily led by a different friendship group who would encourage me to self-sabotage that friendship. 
Um, I also think that a lot of it was self-confidence and the fact that I studied every other girl's behaviour, tried to fit in using their behaviours, but it didn't quite work. So it was a little bit awkward. Um, and I, it just didn't come naturally to me. It just, with boys, I could be myself. I was myself. I got on with boys. There were no questions. There was no makeup. There was no talking about pop groups. You know, I didn't do any of that. Um, I still don't do makeup now. I put makeup on if I go out on a night out, but that is really it. Other than that, I'm just in comfortable clothes. Um, and I think girls confused me because they were all into fashion, makeup, boys. And even though I hung around with them, I wasn't really that interested in kind of romantic and boyfriend and girlfriend stuff and you know cuddling around the bike sheds and you know it just wasn't me mm. um I just wanted to get into trouble and cause havoc but but not not bad trouble you know just silliness like I don't know just just being just being silly with the boys and throwing stuff and climbing trees and stuff like that and uh, yeah, it was just, I just couldn't do the whole girl thing. Because I guess, you know, I mean, and, you know, something we've spoken about in, in previous conversations and, you know, when we're, when we're trying to unpick how to support autistic people in a school environment and, and I guess avoid them from masking because of the damage that can do long term. Are we, do you think there's anything that could have happened at school that would have changed that? Like, do you, do you think it would have just always been difficult for you to interact with those people? Or I think if I would have known about being autistic, I would have accepted myself a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and had somebody picked up on that in childhood, I would have probably taken a different path you know I would have I would have understood myself and been able to say at that point you know oh I feel uncomfortable with that mm. um and be myself rather than mimicking the other girls behaviors and getting it wrong most of the time I think it's interesting as well in, in just to, to sort of zoom out a little bit like school in general there's this weird sort of social what's the word sort of paradox nowadays where kids grow up in either a really overly structured and regimented social environment i.e a classroom where there's like real sort of parameters on how you socialize and then then they go get pushed out and just do whatever you want as long as no one's watching so there's like, you know, you go from having real sort of structure and clarity about what you can and can't do, can and can't talk about, blah, blah, blah. And then it's just whatever's going on. Um, yeah, that's the transition from primary to secondary, isn't it? And kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, having your completely structured day laid out in front of you and being guided in the playground and being watched over to going into secondary and having 
gone from like a 300 pupil primary to a 1200 pupil secondary and having the biggest playground and not really knowing what to do with it and where to go and who to find your group of specific people that are going to get you mm. and I definitely feel that that should be in the curriculum and I don't feel like it should be social skills groups geared towards autistic people. I feel like it should be social skills groups or, or social groups for all children to learn about each other. So this is why an autistic person does that. This is why a neurotypical person does this. Let's work out ways how we can have both and accept it. Um, and not find it weird or not find it you know awkward or being a good friend to that person and accepting that person and being able to advocate for that person if they can't for themselves and there is a lot of pressure on siblings and neurotypical peers to advocate for their autistic friends or family members um, but when something comes easier to you as a neurotypical I feel like it should be encouraged to use that and allow somebody else to be able to benefit from it, which is why I think that um, all autistic pupils in primary schools, especially, and possibly secondary schools, depending on you know, what, what it is and, and how they teach, should have buddy mentors where you have an autistic year six child mentoring a year three or a year two pupil and giving them the tools to be able to advocate for themselves um understand themselves better and come from a place of acceptance because you, you can't advocate for yourself or understand until you accept who you are mm. and I don't think our autistic children are ever taught in a school to accept who they are. They are always taught to be somebody different and to be somebody who fits the neat little box that we always put children in. And that isn't fair because then they grow up and they become adults like me who now have to spend however many years going back through 30 years worth of trauma and understanding that trauma coming to terms with that trauma and eventually getting past the trauma and that could take a lifetime hmm. and I, I think that you know to an extent as well that there's there is such a message of conformity in school most most neurotypical children and young people kind of take it with a pinch of salt and will oh yeah whatever you know but they'll also be able to intuitively go no yeah now's the time to just to do that but their their conformity not that it's always a good thing but it arguably comes a bit more naturally they're not managing behaviors that if they don't do will lead them more likely to be feeling overwhelmed you know like they might want to they might want to talk to the person next to them but not talking to them and doing their work is not going to 
cause anxiety, whereas the autistic child that needs to rock and move around, perhaps yeah. managing that for fear of being different is going to be at a cost, isn't it? So yeah. I guess that's where the, the difference is, and that's where the the added danger, the added risk is for the autistic child that's conforming because they feel like they should and they have to. Um, Which is why we need not just neurodivergent friendly learning environments, we need neurodiverse friendly environments because we need to find the middle common ground where all learners can learn in the same environment at the same pace with each other and all feel accepted and understood because I'll bet you that out of those neurotypical children who can choose not to talk to that friend or not to sit and rock still feel uncomfortable with an unmet need yeah because they are children at the end of the day and I don't think we should expect them to sit there in silence very still with a good posture all day long anymore it's just not it's just not it's just not right, is it? It's just well, it's we don't we, we're not expected to do it as adults. I'm I'm yeah. hunched over here. I need to oh, you just reminded me about the pops posture. Like yeah. we don't we set these limits on kids that we don't expect of ourselves in a working yeah. environment. Well, not not one that I would really work in anyway. So yeah. you know and another point as well is that you you were mentioning the neurotypical children who can choose to not talk to a friend and do their work and then we have the neurodivergent child who needs that movement who needs to do that rocking who still gets reprimanded for that rocking and that movement and that talking but when you have a neurotypical child who's asked to stop we need to be looking at um do they stop or do they need to keep being reminded okay and the other child who's neurodivergent if they're told to stop and then they're given i don't know a behavior point or a consequence for that rocking and, and that talking do they continue to do that because that's where we find our children who aren't using that behavior you know to be cheeky or to be naughty but they're doing it gen genuinely for a need if a consequence isn't working you have to ask yourself why mm. you know you will consequence a neurotypical child and they would probably get it after three or four goes you know sometimes less maybe more you could consequence a neurodivergent child their whole life and they would still need to rock mm. whether they do or not depends on the way that the consequences has encouraged them to mask or form mm. but they would still have that need there and that's that's where it gets i think that's where there's so much risk because it's so difficult for the outside person to know whether someone is doing something because it's a want or a need and the minute you assume it's a want that's when you use consequence. And my fear would be that yes, so, so, so the neurotypical child, you're in a classroom, they do something they shouldn't, you, 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 in front of the whole class, boy, stop that, but you know, you know, they might get, so, I mean, I used to, I used to enjoy it, to be honest. I, used to, I like being, everyone's looking at me, everyone's laughing at me, brilliant. But there are other children, young people, and that I think, 
possibly you know neurodivergent that would that one incident could be enough to set them masking. My dog got out. I've just got. Oh no! Sorry. Go get it. Go get the dog. Jodie's dog's escaped. I think. Which is a. a, a, Should I carry on my point? Wait till she gets back because I was talking to her. Be weird if I carried on. Um, We're not. We're doing these live. Obviously, well, they're not released live, but just because it's it's going to be a free resource. uh, I'm not going to do much editing, if any. So we are just going to, we're going to free flow it. So you might get the odd little bit of waffle from me filling time when a guest's dog has escaped. Uh, I'm not sure that'll be a regular occurrence. Maybe not, maybe not. Uh, it's a nice little time for me to remind you, though, to check out the Neurodive Facebook page for any events, uh, online webinars we're doing, uh, how to contact us about certain things. If you want to be a guest on the podcast, that be fantastic i'm genuinely looking to speak to as many people uh, with experiences to share as i can as i have sort of time for um and also if you've got any you know things we'd, you'd like to hear more of on the podcast always looking to to hear from you about that uh, you can contact me at neurodive training at gmail.com i'm just going to double check that one this is the the first episode so the first time i've done these kind of reads uh yeah neurodive training at gmail.com is the, the way to get hold of me regarding these kind of things um got some great guests lined up over the coming weeks so keep an eye out for that uh, like share subscribe tell people about it it all really helps we do want to keep it as a, a kind of free resource uh, so obviously the, the more, I guess, the more traffic that generates towards neurodive in general, the, the more I can justify doing it, which is great because uh, I just love speaking to people like Jody. Again, I've got about a million questions and things to ask her and talk to her about. Um, but I guess, you know, whilst she's sorting the dog, just to touch back on that idea of, you know, social skills for all, social skills training for all kids. I think that's what we're talking about. And I don't think that that is a, a requirement that is unreasonable of schools. You know, they're already teaching, you know, subjects, subjects similar to that in certain schools. I think what, what I'm strongly of the opinion of at the moment, and hopefully we'll find ways in the future to keep... I don't know, help get our voices heard, but the, the system has got to change. There has to be a release of pressure on the teachers, on the people within that system to just get grades, to just churn out high achievers in terms of grades uh, so that they do better in the league table. I mean, it's just a ridiculous way of measuring success in a school environment. You know, you, most children will spend a huge proportion of their actual time as a child in school. And as a, a new father, I, I find it ridiculous and something I'm not okay with to even consider that my son will, you know, that it's almost too much for me to ask that my son enjoys school. That's, yeah. not, that's not that important. Well, I'm not okay with that, I don't think, because that is 
Jodie, have you come back and there's the screen frozen? Yes. <laughs> the, because the screen froze when you were away. So I'm just ranting and rambling, filling time until you come back. I thought, where's the, how far has the dog gone? <laughs> I did wonder if you could see me or not. So I was just nodding along and yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. But yeah, so I'll, we'll come back off that rant, 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 a bit posh then, and get back to, to what you were, we were talking about before you left, um, which was that idea that, you know, if, if a child, if we use consequence and punishment in the wrong way, I think there is danger you could traumatise that child for years. And to me, it almost suggests that, like you say, a more neurodiverse friendly environment would actually be not using consequences and punishment in that more traditional way. Yes, you might need consequences, but the way that they're delivered could, could be done better. I think. Yeah, and, and I think also what evades some teachers is the bigger picture. So just as an example, um, I might have told you about this before, Sam, but Stanley's teacher phoned me up one day um, and said, I just want to talk to you about Stanley. Um, he, it was his RE teacher. He had a really good lesson today. Um, he got most of his work done, but he left my class like three minutes early um, and he didn't say he was going anywhere. He just left. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, like, did anything happen in the lesson? You know, I asked lots of questions, lots of very reasonable questions. Like, why did this happen? Why do you think this happened? Um, and he said, I don't know. He was working with his one-to-one. -one. He had a one-to-one -one in there at that point um, who was helping him scribe. And he said he, he completed his work and he just left. And I said, well, did he use his timeout card at all during the lesson? Because um, Stanley has a timeout card and he can go and take a break when he needs to. And he said, no, usually he'll use it two to three times, but he only used his timeout card once today. And I said, oh, that could possibly be why he left early. Maybe he just forgot to tell you that he was using his timeout card at that specific point. Um, and he was like, well, you know, I can't really have this behavior because um, it's just going to teach the other children that they can leave earlier. So I had a conversation with him and then Stanley came home and I said to him, why did you leave your class early? And he said, I didn't. He said, sir told us to pack up our stuff, hand our work in and clean our desks because of COVID. So they have to wipe down their workstations. And he said, as soon as you've done that, it's time to go. So what the teacher was thinking was by the time everybody has done that stuff, the bell would be ringing. But he didn't realise how significant Stanley's ADHD was and that he could do that within 60 seconds. Wipe down his desk, give his books to his teacher and off he went. You know, he was very literal. He was told that he could leave as soon as he'd done those three things and he did. And so you can imagine I had like the biggest email to send. Um, and actually I was really annoyed because they hadn't looked at the bigger picture. The teacher hadn't looked at his own behavior or his own communication and instead had filtered all of that into 
a 13 year old boy who has ADHD, autism and Tourette syndrome and put the responsibility on him. And I don't think that that's fair. And I will never be the parent to sit down and agree with that consequence. Because I said to the teacher, how long does he have to come and have a detention for? And he said, he needs to come and he needs to stay with me at the end of the next lesson for five minutes. Well, and I said, three minutes early, so I, I literally said, are you kidding me? I said, I, I'm, I'm really cross about mm. that. I said, like, why, why can you not look at the bigger picture and understand that he done all of his work in his lesson. He only used his timeout card once. He handed his book in, he cleaned down his workstation and he left because he was told he could leave after he'd done those things. Now, usually he doesn't have a very good lesson. He wouldn't have done all of his work. He would have used his timeout card five times and left on time. Now you have to weigh up the good with the bad, right? So you're punishing my son leaving three minutes earlier regardless of the fact that he'd had a really good lesson and completed his work it just does not make sense to me yeah i mean no i mean in, in so many ways that is it's well, discrimination i would say because no, you know, that, and that's exactly the email that i sent to them and um i did receive an email back saying we're sorry for causing the concern mm. and he won't need to have that consequence even if it's not, which is discriminating, it's also a really poorly understood way of using a consequence. Because what that consequence says to me is, okay, so you're basically saying to the child that time with me is unpleasant. Now I don't, you know, I don't know that teacher. Maybe it is. Maybe he's got really bad halitosis. Some of mine did. But you know, what is that? So your punishment is time with me. And I'm your teacher, so I probably want you to enjoy your time with me at some on some level and have a bit of fun. But also, like it, it also assumes that you know. And I don't know enough about your son, but it also assumes that he is enjoying the thing that's happening next. So therefore, this five minutes delay is also punishment. Yeah. And then again, it also underneath all of that implies that he had a choice and took a decision and the next time it happens he's going to stop and think and go okay last time that happened this happened don't want that to happen it's just it's so this is why i think if we were creating more just neurodiverse friendly environments we need a complete rethink of consequence punishment because it just is this massive topic that people just think, depending on your perspective, your social upbringing, your personality, you can use it in so many different ways, you know? If he just said, because of what's happened, I'm gonna keep him in at the end of the next lesson and just have a chat with him about why it happened and what we can do next time and how we can help him so that it doesn't happen again. It's completely different, completely the different. consequence, but it's completely the different yeah. handle, you know. He and only he, he didn't even phone me about it neither. He could have just literally <laughs> saw him at the next lesson and said, Oh, Stan, wait there, I just need to have a quick chat. Um, there you go. Stanley would have then told him his point of view, and the teacher probably would have understood. Mm-hmm. But that phone call came at a time where I'd received 
phone calls, EWO letters from two children, for two children, so um, educational welfare officer with threats of fines, um, and a week where one or other of Stanley's teachers had phoned or emailed me about something that he'd done, which was a part of his difficulties as being autistic or ADHD. And do you know how sick and tired I am of those phone calls when most of them don't even really need to be emailed or phoned to me about? Like, just, just understand and accept that he's different and allow him to be himself so that his mental health doesn't suffer. And don't burden me as the parent with your own difficulty of understanding my children because that makes me really cross mm. that makes me really cross and that day I did get cross um and I did tell them that they were discriminating against him and they were very quick to email me back um with an apology so they knew after I'd pointed it out to them but parents shouldn't need to point that out to teachers We've spoken a, little, a bit, quite a bit about, you know, your early experiences uh, and, and difficulties that you later in life have been able to sort of put down to not understanding yourself as autistic at that time. But where do you think the benefits have been for you, if there are, you know, in terms of, do you think there's anything about your your way of seeing the world that has been really beneficial to what you've done and what you've achieved? What, what do you think those things might be? Do, do you mean with regards to not knowing about being autistic? No, because I, I guess not knowing, I don't think, or yeah, maybe, if, if you want to answer that. Do, do you think not, is um, there any benefit in not knowing? I mean, I would imagine not really. No, um, I would say no, there was, I would say, and this is a real kind of insight into what is wrong with the world. The mm. only benefit about me not knowing that I was autistic whilst my children were growing up and going through school is that I wasn't labeled with being an autistic mother and having that negativity thrown on me as a sort of blame for my children's difficulties. And that is what is wrong with the world. I see autistic parents now who, who have grown up knowing that they're autistic, who have autistic children and have been accused of fabricated and induced illness. And that hasn't happened to me. And now I don't think it will because I work, I, I do work very well with all of the services. But had they known from the outset that I was autistic myself, could it be a different story? I think it possibly could have. And and yeah, that that's that's huge. That's wrong. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, that that shouldn't be a benefit at all. But no, it's like it's it's just like a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Hmm. Like, you know, well done, you're autistic. <laughs> But I mean, I, I guess I guess more, you know, because I, I am really interested in um, creating more well-known, 
positive pathways to success for autistic people. I think, you know, in the, certainly in the professional field, there's a lot of information given out, covered, <clears throat> and talked about, and, you know, particularly with parents about the negatives. And of course, you know, there are, there are challenges, there are difficulties, they're very real. And uh, we can't just kind of sugarcoat that. But I think what is going to help us make change for the better is, is finding out what has helped, what's worked, uh, and then making that part of, of every autistic person's life. So where, where do you think those things are? Where, for, for you personally, do you, are we not, you know, you, you've created so many different things that have helped so many people. Do you think that has been helped by your hyper-focus? Is, is that something that's been Yeah, I think, um, I think encouraging all learners to learn from neurodivergent people is the biggest start that we can make in the mm. community. Um, promoting any neurodivergent speaker so that people learn from them, which is why I created the professionals group. Um, I'm a, I am a project starter. I love to build new things, but don't specifically like to continue them long term. <laughs> We've <laughs> um, got so much in common. <laughs> it sounds like school. Yeah. Creative yeah. starter, not be a finisher. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a good, I, I enjoy starting and creating things that can then be taken on by other people to do good. Um, I get bored very easily. So, I mean, last year we started the nurturing consultancy and we lasted about four months before I got bored and said, I'm not doing this anymore. I need to do something different. Um, and it wasn't boredom of the families. I think it was just that my spark for that specific interest had run its course. And I, I was coming up against the same difficulties and I, a new idea had spiraled from that. So I needed to work with that rather than continuing the consultancy. Um, which is why we've launched the conference now. So the conference is running in October and that kind of took over from the consultancy. And then that's up and running now. And I've started the professionals group. So that's in the works and, and there'll probably be something else after it. Um, I don't like to do the same things over and over again. I think people need more. They need new, fresh, um, you know, you can't you can't talk about the same stuff for the for a whole year, can you? Because it just gets boring. So the, and I I guess what's I guess what's helped there is you kind of knowing that and accepting it. As mm. I was just talking to someone the other day about this, and I think there's almost like these stages of you develop awareness of where your strengths are, where your challenges might be. But then you've got to develop acceptance and then you can make adjustments, you know? Yeah. Because some people build that awareness and it comes at a time when you then you start beating yourself up about it. Why am I not good at this? Why can't I do that? Oh, 
maybe yeah. work harder at those things and then still realize you can't quite manage them that is exactly it yeah I think the workload was getting difficult for me I knew that I wasn't in the right frame of mind to continue it to my full potential um and so it was easier and kinder to the families that I was working with to say I have to scale this down I'm not giving it you know my full attention anymore um and here's a new person to work with you know go to them they'll they'll help you far better than what I can at the moment and I'm I'm comfortable doing that I love to I love to create things for other people too so just just working in the community with everybody makes me happy I don't like the conflict and you know the the grumpiness that comes with competing on pages and that makes me uncomfortable so I prefer to be neutral and just work with everybody and anyone yeah yeah it's the social media world can be full of hurdles can't it right. that's perhaps something we could talk about off 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 recording at some point um okay well jody i'll take i think i've taken up too much of your time today um, and i'd love to get you back on i could just talk to you for ages about this kind of stuff from your, your ideas um if people are listening to this that haven't heard of you before where can they go to find your work so we have the nurture program page and a couple of linked groups we have um www.thenurtureprogram.co.uk and if you're a professional listening we also have a private professionals group which is safe for you to come in and talk about your difficulties your experiences share your ideas how you're creating neurodiverse friendly learning environments um and collaborate which i'm a, i'm a part of neurodiverse yes, part of. I yeah i recommend it i'll shoot i should be live there well i'm going to say next week but i don't know when this podcast will come out but you know <laughs> might have done it by then um great stuff okay thank you so much jody and, and so everyone listening again please like follow share the podcast uh, you can check us out neurodive training on the, it's the facebook page um and if you need to contact me about anything to do with training webinars uh the podcast then it is neurodive training at gmail.com thank you everyone for listening take care <laughs>